At the start of the pandemic, did you ever think you might know someone who wouldn't make it through? By now, you probably do. One in every three Americans knows someone who's died of COVID-19. Gracie Floyd, even as a young girl, fought for equality. Ben Luterer was a special education teacher. Betty and Curtis Tarpley met in high school, found each other again as adults, fell in Glica love. Hernandez. Kamora Lina. Leonard Lomas. Joyce Pacubas LeBlanc. Brandon McRae. Today, more than 545,000 people in America have died from the virus. That's more people than any other country in the world. More Americans have died of COVID-19 than in battle in World War I, World War II, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War combined. And these aren't just numbers. They're people. They're husbands and wives. She was a cheerleader for me. She would nudge me to push myself. Sisters and brothers. My mom always called him our gentle giant. Sons and daughters. She loved life. She was always busy learning new things. Parents and grandparents. My mother was the hugging type, and I miss those the most. It's impossible to truly make sense of the sheer scale of the loss to feel the impact of each life that's been cut short. But what we can do is remember their stories. In this episode, we'll hear about the lives of four people who died of COVID-19, from the people they left behind, about their memories, what they miss, and how, like so many across the country, they're finding a way to grieve and move forward. From the PBS NewsHour, this is America Interrupted, the longest year, a four-part series looking at the staggering toll the pandemic has taken on America. I'm Amna Nawaz. This is the fourth and final episode. At the end of February last year, we learned about the first person in the United States to die from COVID-19. Washington State today reported the nation's first death from the coronavirus. The victim, a Washington State man in his 50s who had underlined... This now makes the first coronavirus death confirmed in the U.S. At first, the warnings were for older people who were thought to be at higher risk. But as we quickly learned, being young didn't necessarily protect you. Chris Miller was 21 years old, starting his last year of college in Sherman, Texas, when he got sick. His older sister, Anaria Bush, was in Houston, watching the pandemic unfold from the front lines. It was her first year working as an ER nurse, and she treated lots of patients with COVID. And in some cases, she was at their side for their final moments. But suddenly, she found herself relying on nursing staff hundreds of miles away when Chris was hospitalized in August. He died in December, after months of complications from COVID-19. Anaria told us about what the last year was like for her. So 2020 actually started off a rocky year, I think, for anybody. Um, I had just started my nursing career um, in the ER uh, starting February of 2020. And of course, we have a virus that no one knows about and everybody is flooding ERs, flooding hospitals. And I think a lot of people learned the virus attacks different people different ways. 
It it does not discriminate. And it did a number on a lot of people that I saw in my hospital. Um, but things changed when it was introduced to my family. Chris was an amazing kid. My mom always called him our gentle giant. And um, he that's, well, that's what he truly was. He stood at six feet tall, 300 pounds, solid. But he was just a teddy bear to everybody. Growing up, he always wanted to be with his sisters. There's um, two of us. Um, we're older than him. That's myself and my sister, Amber. He literally grew up at our private school, elementary school. He was always in the class with us, um, but he was everybody's baby. He just had this amazing smile. Chris wanted to be a um, chef. He wanted to own his own restaurants, and he wanted to teach other people how to cook. He was actually going into his senior year. He was ready to graduate. <laughs> I remember him telling me and my mom that he was just so happy that he had just got his cap and gown. And he was just excited. August 31st, I was at work. I got a call from the school's nurse and she, she sounded very frantic. She said, I just want to let you know that Chris was just um, taken by ambulance to the ER. And I'm like, what? For what? Like, I'm so confused at this point. And she goes on to say that his roommates found him struggling to breathe and that they rushed him to the ER. They told us that night it didn't look good. His x-rays, they were looking pretty bad. The COVID had, it started in the center of his chest and worked its way out. He ended up in ICU and requiring more resources to give him more oxygen to his body. He got so bad too, they had to end up getting him to another hospital. And we had amazing nurses that allowed us to FaceTime him every night when he was just intubated and just laying there still. We even had a nurse that went above and beyond because Chris had an afro. So she was like, he needs his hair washed. Y'all got to tell me what to buy. And I thought she was playing, but I told her what to buy. And she um, was a white, white nurse, white woman. And she went on uh, YouTube to find out how to braid black, thick, cultured hair. And the next day, she said, Chris has a hair appointment, and she showed me all the hair products. I was just so amazed, but I was still a little nervous, like, how is this hair going to look? And the next night, he had the most perfect cornrows. I think they were better than mine. <laughs> they were just so, it was just, I mean, it was just so nice. And so they gave us hope, honestly, with everything they were doing, all the measures and the caring parts that weren't even a part of their job description. It helped me even in my nursing career just to, you know, see how above and beyond they were going. People don't understand that COVID can damage your lungs so badly that it can cause complications that you can die from those complications. And that's what took Chris's life. When we found out that he didn't have health insurance, it was devastating 
but we also knew that this hospital would take him without it. We just weren't sure how much things would cost. And just one hospital is close to $3 million. And we don't have that kind of money. I don't want it to overwhelm my mother. I don't want it to overwhelm us. But it is a a worry in the back of our heads knowing that we have these bills, that we have to find a way to take care of them. At times, I feel angry because this virus took away my brother, took away my uh, a part of my family. I just, you know, I miss him so much. I'm learning how to grieve, you know, because I'm so busy with work and having to step back sometimes and just realize that I'm not okay you know and Chris is a huge part of our family but I also have hope um I have hope that we can get through this we can get past this I've never felt a pain like this before some days I just want to lay in bed and just cry and ask God why but then I'm reminded by his smile and I believe he's looking down on us and just smiling. And I know Chris's spirit will never die because it lives in me, my mother, and my sister Amber. As the virus spiraled out of control, there seemed to be no rhyme or reason to how you caught it, how bad it would be, how long it would last, or if you would survive. For Aaron Costello and his family in Alexandria, Virginia, the virus changed their lives in the blink of an eye. A few days before Christmas, his wife Tiffany Shackelford had flu-like symptoms. Five days later, she was dead. They had been careful, too, wearing masks, limiting their social interactions, but that wasn't enough to keep COVID away. And Tiffany's death left Aaron and their nine-year-old son, Sam, trying to figure out a future without her. Tiffany was funny. She was smart. We, I think, complimented each other with her kind of outgoing um, personality and my more reserved personality. We would sit and watch silly movies. Um, We would sing 80s songs and change the lyrics to be funny to us or to be dirty. Um, And, you know, we kind of got each other as far as our sense of humor. Our son Sam was born in 2011, and we were thrilled. I remember we had these long discussions about what we should name him. And one of the reasons we landed on Samuel and and call him Sam is she said, well, um, you know, a Sam can be a bartender or a Supreme Court justice. So we've got him covered either way. She was thinking about the fact that, well, her son could be a bartender and that'll be okay, or, or maybe he'll be a Supreme Court justice and that will be okay. Over the course of the year, we were very careful. We we limited our our interactions with other people. We we did not do many of the things we would normally do, and we were grateful um, that you know, uh, unlike a lot of people, we had sort of got through 2020 okay. You know, and we had even talked about late in the year around Thanksgiving about how, boy, this year has been okay for us. It, it sure sure could have been worse, but. 
A couple days before Christmas, um, Tiffany just started to feel bad and felt like, you know, she had a cold and was feeling tired and run down. And um, obviously with COVID being out there, we were trying to be sensitive and careful to this, but she really just felt like, you know, these are cold symptoms, just don't feel great. Um, then the morning of December 27th, she she was coughing a little bit more and, and, and obviously maybe a little bit more seriously. So we had this conversation, you know, hey, it's time to, let's let's drive you down to the clinic and see what's going on. And, and she agreed. And um, so we started to get ready to go to the clinic. And, um, and she said, um, you know, I want to take a shower first. And as I kind of walked down the hall, I heard, um, you know, a noise, which to me, it was pretty clear that she had fallen or, or slipped. And I found her in the bathroom unresponsive. I called um, 911. When the EMTs got there, they told me that she was in cardiac arrest, and um, they worked on her at our house for a while. I was able to get a hold of some friends in the neighborhood that, that came and got our son. So then I went over to the emergency room after she was there. The doctor came in 15 or 20 minutes later and just told me that she had died. So, my first thought was, well, I've got to tell my son. And how am I going to do that? I put my son in the car. And it was a weirdly nice and sunny day for December 27th. And so, I thought, you know, I want to... I don't want to tell him at our house. Um, so I took him to his preschool. And they have an outdoor area with some benches and rocks you can sit on. And I sat him down and I just told him. Um, and that's the hardest thing I've ever had to do. Tell my little boy that his mom is gone. So when the hospital called the next afternoon and told us that they had tested her and she had COVID, I was shocked that it had taken her life, but I wasn't shocked when they called me with those results. Um, but then I started to think, you know, it it seems like maybe I've I've got some of the symptoms myself, um, and at this point my symptoms are getting worse. I'm feeling really bad and staying in bed all the time, and I'm not in a position to take care of of my nine year old son. So, um, you know, we thankfully were blessed with one of my son's favorite babysitters happened to be home from college for Christmas break. Without the babysitters we had, we, you know, I don't know how we would have gotten through that week. They were there all week whenever we needed them. And it was scary for me at night when I knew that it, after they helped Sam get to bed that they were going to be leaving. And I was going to be there alone, sick, <laughs> with, with my son after my wife had just died a, a few days ago. I think it was... 
14 days after Tiffany died before somebody gave me a hug. Um, you know, I'm not a real huggy guy, but that's tough too, to not get some of that support you normally get. The hardest moment for me out of all this is the day that I went to pick up her ashes. And I did that by myself. You know, we live south of, of Washington, D.C. in a nice suburb. And um, Tiffany loved to drive down the George Washington Parkway and listen to classical music. And so the day I went to get her to pick her ashes up, I just sort of embraced the fact, well, I've got nobody to go do this with me, so I'll drive down the George Washington Parkway and listen to classical music, and that's what she liked, and I'll go do this by myself. Tiffany was so full of life, kind of larger than life, so f and loved life. To accept that someone like that is, is gone, was taken from us by COVID, it's just a lot to process. And I'm now trying to figure out a path forward for my son and I. How do we, you know, how do I, how do I navigate our life now? Uh, what does this mean for me? You know, I'm now 51 years old and no, no longer married and have lost my partner. And um, it's painful sometimes to think about what this means and to accept what it means. No community has been immune to the virus, but black and brown people across the country are still dying at disproportionate rates and have been all along. And Native American communities are the hardest hit. Indigenous people have died at more than twice the rate of white people in the U.S. Ira Taken Alive, a tribe member from the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation, watched the virus sweep across his community. They lost elders who'd kept alive generations of traditions, including his own parents, Jesse and Cheryl taken alive. My parents um, were very loving. They were just shy of celebrating their 46th wedding anniversary. My mother um, had fallen in love with my dad because of his humor. And of course, my father, he always said that he fell in love with my mother because she was beautiful, not only on the outside, but definitely on the inside. He had served for 24 years as a member of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe Council. Half of our reservation is in North Dakota and half of our reservation is in South Dakota. So our, our tribal council uh, governs the local laws um, here within the borders of the reservation. So he was well known um, in the community, on the reservation, and in the regional parts of Indian country. He was also a staunch and huge advocate for revitalizing and promoting our Dakota Lakota language. He, in fact, was a teacher um, at the local high school here in McLaughlin, teaching Lakota language and culture. And uh, he was essentially a walking dictionary. Unfortunately, Lakota language or Sioux language um, has been deemed an endangered language. So the work that he did um, in a lot of people's view was crucial and critical. And my mother, she had her own niche as well. 
for a good number of years, she focused her work on working with families who had experienced the tragedy of suicide um, and devoted even her free time to making sure that the families were progressing well in their recovery and in their healing. Uh, COVID arrived on the reservation in late March of last year, and we had had a handful of cases through the spring and through the summer, and we saw a huge outbreak in the fall, but it was just so overwhelming. On November 11th, my mom uh, passed away from complications from COVID, and it just was a complete blur, but it also impacted my dad's recovery. Um, if we could have put on his uh, death certificate, um, died of a broken heart, we probably could. His condition just deteriorated from that point, and he lasted 33 days. And uh, just every day, uh, talked about my mother, how much he missed her. And, you know, we tried to keep his, his focus away from that on, and, and on healing and one, things that he can do once he got out of the hospital. But it was just too much for him. On the day my father passed away, that day marked the 300,000th American death from COVID. But it was also the first day that uh, a vaccine was administered here in the United States. So the morning of his passing, he and I and my siblings were watching CNN as uh, an individual was receiving the vaccine. And then, of course, on the headline, the banner headline saying that the U.S. was on target of reaching the 300,000th death that day. And, you know, perhaps my father was the 300,000th. A year ago, we probably couldn't have imagined being in the position that we are in right now, mourning the loss of my parents and other family members and reeling from the effects of the virus. But um, it just uh, brought to light the wonderful, awesome parents that we had. And uh, the silver lining was that they were together again, you know, and most certainly for a lifetime. Over the past year, frontline medical workers took the weight of this new disease on their shoulders. They lived it. They breathed it, trying to save lives, trying to keep the rest of us safe, many dealing with death every single day. Last year, thousands of healthcare workers themselves died of the virus. One of them was Adeline Fagan. She was just out of medical school in her first year as a resident in Houston. She was worried her asthma would put her more at risk, but she kept going to work anyway. Adeline's mother, Mary Jane Apt Fagan, is still struggling to come to terms with what happened to her daughter. Adeline is my second oldest child. She kept me on my toes. She was always busy investigating, um, you know, learning new things. When she got into high school, she just blossomed. Um, she became school president. 
She got herself involved in as many activities as possible. Um, she played uh, lacrosse. Was she good at it? Absolutely not. But she loved the camaraderie. She loved to be with her peers. She loved to be, you know, part of a group. And um, from a very young age, she was very interested in medicine. We have pictures of her running around with a stethoscope around her neck and playing with her dollies, pretending they were sick. And um, she was interested in women's health particularly working with the underprivileged women who didn't have the financial resources to be able to get excellent medical care. And so Adeline did a rotation in the emergency room and um, she was finishing up her first year of residency program when she contracted um, COVID. Adeline was admitted on the 14th of July. And so my husband and I drove um, to Texas. We stayed in a tent as opposed to staying in a hotel because I didn't want to take the chance of being exposed. So we ended up staying in tents. Um, by the time we got to Houston, we ended up living in Adeline's apartment because I wanted to be physically in the city with her letting her know that we were physically there, hoping that that would give her the strength to know that loved ones, even though we couldn't be in the hospital, we were still in the same city. So we lived there for two months and um, it was extremely difficult to watch her deteriorate and we were exhausted. You woke up and you were already emotionally and physically drained and um, once they told her that she was going to be put on a vent she was pretty much afraid she'd never see us again when she was transferred from um, ICU because she was testing negative for for COVID she was put into her own separate room and you know here we are you know we cannot wait to see her I ended up going in first for the first 15 minutes and it just so happens that Adeline was not very responsive that day. And I said, Adeline, do you know who I am? And she said yes. And then her eyes would go down and I had to ask her a number of times to open her eyes and it was extremely difficult. I mean, she was trying so hard to do that. I knew that my husband wanted to see her as well, so I didn't want to like utilize all the time by me just staying in there. So just before we left, I said, Adeline, can you open your eyes and give me a kiss? And she leaned forward and she gave me a kiss on the mouth. And I just had this feeling, this, this awful feeling that I would never do this again. So I, I said, can you give me one more kiss? And she opened her eyes and she gave me another kiss and I said goodbye and I would see her in a couple days. Late Friday night of that week, we got the phone call that she had the brain bleed. And then we, you know, drove there like maniacs to get there and stayed there and until they disconnected all the all the tubing and the equipment. 
they did everything they could to get this to turn its corner, but it just, you know, COVID just got a hold of her lungs and just, just went rampant. Her life was cut short at 28. It broke my heart. Little by little, I'm trying to forgive the people that, you know, made poor choices in society, you know, with COVID and time is going to hopefully heal my broken heart. Adeline Fagan, Chris Miller, Tiffany Shackelford, Jesse and Cheryl Taken Alive. Multiply their stories by hundreds of thousands of families, friends, colleagues, and communities, and that is where we are today. But as we've learned from all the people we heard in this series, the medical community did develop a vaccine in under a year. Americans found new ways to be resilient in tough times, and many recognize just how far we have to go on racial equity in this country. We all know life won't go back to the way it was. We have seen and lived through and lost far too much. But how we remember this pandemic and this longest year will shape how we all move forward. From all of us at the PBS NewsHour, Thank you to the families for sharing their stories and to you for listening. This episode was produced by Maya Lene Bura, Lorna Baldwin, and Vika Aronson. Edited by Emily Carpo and Erica R. Hendry. Fact-checking by Sam Lane and Jaywan Che. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. Our thanks to Frank Carlson, Travis Dobb, Vanessa Dennis, James Williams, and Maura Shannon. Our executive producer is Sarah Just. You can follow all our coverage on air and on our website. That's pbs.org newshour.